Chapter Eleven of the Lone Wolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Lone Wolf by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Eleven. Flight. Now, when Lanyard had locked the door, he told himself that the gruesome peace of those two bedchambers was insured, barring mischance, for as long as a drug continued to hold dominion over the American, and he felt justified in reckoning that period apt to be tolerably protracted, while not before noon, at earliest, would any hotelier who knew his business permit the rest of the Anglo-Saxon guest to be disturbed lacking, that is, definite instructions to the contrary. For a full minute after withdrawing the key, the adventurer stood at alert attention, but the heavy silence of that sinister old rookery sang in his ears untroubled by any untoward sound. That wistful shadow of his memories, that cowering Marcel of the so-dead yesterday in acute terror of the land of Madame Troyon, had never stolen down that corridor more quietly. Yet Lanyard had taken not five paces from his door when that other opened, at the far end, and Lucia Bannon stepped out. He checked then, and shut his teeth upon an involuntary oath. Truly it seemed as though this run of the devil's own luck would never end. Astonishment measurably modified his exasperation. What had roused the girl out of bed, and dressed her for the street at that unholy hour? and why her terror at sight of him for that the surprise was no more welcome to her than to him was as patent as the fact that she was prepared to leave the hotel forthwith enveloped in a business-like burberry rainproof from her throat to the hem of a tweed walking skirt and wearing boots both stout and brown and at sight of him she paused and instinctively stepped back groping blindly for the knob of her bedchamber door, while her eyes, holding to his with an effect of frightened fascination, seemed momentarily to grow more large and dark in her face of abnormal pallor. But these were illegible evidences, and Lanyard was intent solely on securing her silence before she could betray him and ruin incontinently that grim alibi which he had prepared at such elaborate pains. He moved toward her swiftly, with long and silent strides, a lifted hand enjoining rather than begging her attention, aware as he drew nearer that a curious change was coloring the complexion of her temper. She passed quickly from dread to something oddly like relief, from repulsion to something strangely like welcome, and, dropping the hand that had sought the doorknob, in her turn moved quietly to meet him. He was grateful for this consideration, this tacit indulgence of the wish he had as yet to voice, drew a little hope and comfort from it in an emergency which had surprised him without resource other than to throw himself upon her generosity. And as soon as he could make himself heard in the clear yet concentrated whisper that was a trick of his trade, a whisper inaudible to ears a yard distant from those to which it was pitched, he addressed her in a manner at once peremptory and apologetic. "'If you please, Miss Bannon, not a word, not a whisper.' She paused and nodded compliance, questioning eyes steadfast to his. Doubtfully, wondering that she betrayed so little surprise, he pursued as one committed in a forlorn hope. 
It's vitally essential that I leave this hotel without it becoming known. If I may count on you to say nothing... She gave him reassurance with a small gesture. But how? She breathed in the least of whispers. The concierge. Leave that to me. I know another way. I only need a chance. Then won't you take me with you? Eh? He stammered, dashed. Her hands moved toward him in a flutter of entreaty. I too must leave unseen. I must. Take me with you, out of this place, and I promise you no one shall ever know. He lacked time to weigh the disadvantages inherent in her proposition. Though she offered him a heavy handicap, he had no choice but to accept it without protest. Come then, he told her, and not a sound. She signified assent with another nod, and on this he turned to an adjacent door, opened it gently, whipped out his flash lamp, and passed through. Without sign of hesitancy, she followed, and like two shadows they dogged the dancing spotlight of the flash lamp through a linen closet and service room, down a shallow well threaded by a spiral of iron steps, and, by way of the long corridor linking the kitchen offices, to a stout door secured only by huge, old-style bolts of iron. Thus, in less than two minutes from the instant of their encounter, they stood outside Troyon's back door, facing a cramped, malodorous alleyway, a dark and noisome souvenir of that wild medieval Paris whose effacement is an enduring monument to the fame of the good Baron Hausmann. Now again it was raining, a thick drizzle that settled slowly, lacking little of a fog's opacity, and the faint glimmer from the street lamps of that poorly lighted quarter, reflected by the low-swung clouds, lent Lanyard and the girl little aid as they picked their way cautiously, and always in complete silence, over the rude and slimy cobbles of the foul back way for the adventurer had pocketed his lamp, lest its beams bring down upon them some prowling creature of Popinot's, though he felt passively sure that the alley had been left unguarded in the confidence that he would never dream of its existence, did he survive to seek escape from Troyon's. For all its might and its omniscience, Lanyard doubted if the pack had as yet identified Michael Lanyard with that ill-starred Marcel, who once had been as intimate with this forgotten way as any skulking Tom of the quarter. But with a lone wolf confidence was never akin to foolhardiness, and if on leaving Troyon's he took the girl's hand without asking permission, and quite as a matter of course, and drew it through his arm, it was his left arm that he so dedicated to gallantry. His right hand remained unhampered, and never far from the grip of his automatic. Nor was he altogether confident of his companion. The weight of her hand upon his arm, the fugitive contacts of her shoulder, seemed to him, just then, the most vivid and interesting things in life. The consciousness of her personality at his side was like a shaft of golden light penetrating the darkness of his dilemma. But as minutes passed, and their flight was unchallenged, his mood grew dark with doubts and quick with distrust. Reviewing it all, he thought to detect something too damnably adventitious in the way she had nailed him, back there in the corridor of Troyon's. It was a bit too coincidental, a bit thick, like that specious yarn of somnambulism she had told to excuse her presence in his room come to examine it that excuse had been far too clumsy to hoodwink any but a man bewitched by beauty in distress who was she anyway and what her interest in him 
what had she been after in his room this american girl making a first visit to paris in company with her venerable ruin of a parent who for that matter was bannon if her story of sleepwalking were untrue then bannon must have been at the bottom of her essay in espionage bannon the intimate of Nemorbehand, and an american even as the murderer of poor roddy was an american was this singularly casual encounter then but a cloak for further surveillance had he in his haste and desperation simply played into her hands when he burdened himself with the care of her but it seemed absurd to think that she a girl like her whose every word and gesture was eloquent of gentle birth and training yet what had she wanted in his room somnambulists are sincere indeed in the indulgence of their failing when they time their expeditions so opportunely and arm themselves with keys to fit strange doors come to think of it he had been rather wilfully blind to that flaw in her excuse again why should she be up and dressed and so madly bent on leaving troyon's at half-past four in the morning why couldn't she wait for daylight at least what errand reasonable duty or design could have roused her out into the night and the storm at that weird hour he wondered and momentarily he grew more jealously heedful of her critical of every nuance in her bearing the least trace of added pressure on his arm the most subtle suggestion that she wasn't entirely indifferent to him or regarded him in any way other than as the chance-found comrade of an hour of trouble would have served to fix his suspicions for such he told himself would be the first thought of one bent on beguiling to lead him on by some intimation the more tenuous and elusive the more provocative that she found his person not altogether objectionable but he failed to detect anything of this nature in her manner so what was one to think that she was mental enough to appreciate how ruinous to her design would be any such advances in such perplexity he brought her to the end of the alley and there pulled up for a look round before venturing out into the narrow dark and deserted side street that then presented itself at this the girl gently disengaged her hand and drew away a pace or two and when lanyard had satisfied himself that there were no apaches in the offing he turned to see her standing there just within the mouth of the alley in a pose of blank indecision conscious of his regard she turned to his inspection a face touched with a fugitive uncertain smile where are we she asked he named the street and she shook her head that doesn't mean much to me she confessed i'm so strange to paris i know only a few of the principal streets where is the boulevard saint germain lanyard indicated the direction two blocks that way thank you she advanced a step or two but paused again do you know possibly just where i could find a taxicab i'm afraid you won't find any hereabouts at this hour he replied a fiacre perhaps with luck i doubt if there's one disengaged nearer than montmartre where business is apt to be more brisk oh she cried in dismay i hadn't thought of that i thought paris never went to sleep only about three hours earlier than most of the world's capitals but perhaps i can advise you if only you would be so kind only i don't like to be a nuisance he smiled deceptively don't worry about that where do you wish to go to the gare du nord 
That made him open his eyes. The Gare du Nord, he echoed. But, I beg your pardon. I wish to take the first train for London, the girl informed him calmly. You'll have a while to wait, Lanyard suggested. The first train leaves about half-past eight, and it's now not more than five. That can't be helped. I can wait in the station. He shrugged. That was her own lookout, if she were sincere in asserting that she meant to leave Paris, something which he took the liberty of doubting. You can reach it by the metro, he suggested. The underground, you know. There's a station handy, Saint-Germain-de-Pres. If you'd like, I'll show you the way. Her relief seemed so genuine, he could have almost believed in it. And yet? I shall be very grateful, she murmured. He took that for whatever worth it might assay, and quietly fell into place beside her and, in a mutual silence, perhaps largely due to her intuitive sense of his bias, they gained the boulevard Saint-Germain. But here, even as they emerged from the side street, that happened which again upset Lanyard's plans, a belated fiacre hove up out of the mist and ranged alongside, its driver loudly soliciting patronage. Beneath his breath, Lanyard cursed the man liberally, Nothing could have been more inopportune. He needed that uncouth conveyance for his own purposes, and if only it had waited until he had piloted the girl to the station of the Metropolitan, he might have had it. Now he must either yield the cab to the girl or share it with her. But why not? He could readily drop out at his destination and bid the driver continue to the Gare du Nord and the metro was neither quick nor direct enough for his design, which included getting under cover well before daybreak. Somewhat skulkily, then, if without betraying his temper, he signaled the cocher, opened the door, and handed the girl in. "'If you don't mind dropping me en route—' "'I shall be very glad,' she said. "'Anything to repay, even in part, the courtesy you've shown me.' "'Oh, please!' Don't fret about that. He gave the driver precise directions, climbed in, and settled himself beside the girl. The whip cracked, the horse sighed, the driver swore. The aged fiacre groaned, stirred with reluctance, crawled wearily off through the thickening drizzle. Within its body a common restraint held silence like a wall between the two. The girl sat with face averted, reading through the window what corner signs they passed. Rue Bonaparte, Rue Jacob, Rue de Saint-Pierre, Quai Marquès, Pont du Carousel. Recognizing at least one landmark in the gloomy arches of the Louvre, vaguely wondering at the inept French taste in nomenclature which had christened that vast, lowering, echoing quadrangle the Place du Carousel, unliveliest of public places in her strange Parisian experience and, in his turn, Lanyard reviewed those well-remembered ways in vast weariness of spirit, disgusted with himself in consciousness that the girl had somehow divined his distrust. "'The lone wolf, eh?' he mused bitterly. "'Rather, the cornered rat. If people only knew. Better still, the errant—no, the errant ass—' They were skirting the Palais Royal when suddenly she turned to him in an impulsive attempt at self-justification. "'What must you be thinking of me, Mr. Lanyard?' He was startled. "'I? Oh, don't consider me, please. It doesn't matter what I think. Does it?' 
But you've been so kind. I feel I owe you at least some explanation. Oh, as for that, he countered cheerfully, I've got a pretty definite notion you're running away from your father. Yes, I couldn't stand it any longer. She caught herself up in full voice, as though tempted but afraid to say more. He waited briefly before offering encouragement. I hope I haven't seemed impertinent. No, no. Then this impatient negative, his pause of invitation, evoked no other recognition. She had subsided into her reserve, but, he fancied, not altogether willingly. Was it then possible that he had misjudged her? You've friends in London, no doubt, he ventured. No, none. But I shall manage very well. I shan't be there more than a day or two till the next steamer sails. I see. There had sounded in her tone a finality which signified desire to drop the subject. Nonetheless, he pursued mischievously. Permit me to wish you bon voyage, Miss Bannon, and to express my regret that circumstances have conspired to change your plans. She was still eyeing him askance dubiously, as if weighing the question of his acquaintance with her plans, when the fiacre lumbered from the Rue Vivienne into the Place de la Bourse, rounded that frowning pile, and drew up on its north side before the blue lights of the all-night telegraph bureau. "'With permission,' Lanyard said, unlatching the door, "'I'll stop off here, but I'll direct the cocher very carefully to the Gare du Nord. Please don't even tip him. That's my affair.' No, not another word of thanks. To have been permitted to be of service, it is a unique pleasure, Miss Bannon. And so, good night. With an effect that seemed little less than timid, the girl offered her hand. Thank you, Mr. Lanyard, she said in an unsteady voice. I am sorry, but she didn't say what it was she regretted, and Lanyard, standing with bared head in the driving mist, touched her fingers coolly repeated his farewells, and gave the driver both money and instructions, and watched the cab lurch away before he approached the telegraph bureau. But the enigma of the girl so deeply intrigued his imagination that it was only with difficulty that he concocted a non-committal telegram to Roddy's friend in the prefecture, that imposing personage who had watched with the man from Scotland Yard at the platform gates in the Gare du Nord. It was couched in English, when eventually composed and submitted to the telegraph clerk with a fervent, if inaudible, prayer that he might be ignorant of the tongue. Come at once to my room at Troyon. Enter via adjoining room. Prepared for immediate action on important development. Urgent. Rodney. Whether or not this were Greek to the man behind the wicket, it was accepted with complete indifference, or rather with an interest that apparently evaporated on receipt of the fees. Lanyard couldn't see that the clerk favored him with as much as a curious glance before he turned away to lose himself, to bury his identity finally and forever under the incognito of the lone wolf. He couldn't have rested without taking that one step to compass the arrest of the American assassin. Now with luck and prompt action on the part of the prefecture, he felt sure Roddy would be avenged by Monsieur de Paris. But it was very well that there should exist no clue whereby the author of that mysterious telegram might be traced. It was then not an ill-pleased lanyard who slipped off into the night and the rain, 
but his exasperation was elaborate when the first object that met his gaze was that wretched fiacre back in place before the door lucia bannon leaning from its lowered window the cocheur on his box brandishing an importunate whip at the adventurer he barely escaped choking on suppressed profanity and for two sous would have swung on his heel and ignored the girl deliberately but he didn't dare close at hand stood a sergeant de ville inquisitive eyes bright beneath the dripping visor of his capi keenly welcoming this diversion of a cheerless hour with at least outward semblance of resignation lanyard approached the window i have been guilty of some stupidity perhaps he inquired with lip civility that had no echo in his heart but i am sorry this stupidity is mine the girl interrupted in accents tense with agitation mr lanyard i-i her voice faltered and broke off in a short, dry sob, and she drew back with an effect of instinctive distaste for public emotion. Lanyard smothered an impulse to demand roughly, "'Well, what now?' and came closer to the window. "'Something more I can do, Miss Banyan?' "'I don't know. I've just found it out. I came away so hurriedly I never thought to make sure, but I've no money. Not a franc.' After a little pause, he commented helpfully, That does complicate matters, doesn't it? What am I to do? I can't go back. I won't. Anything, rather. You may judge how desperate I am when I prefer to throw myself on your generosity, and already I've strained your patience. Not much, he interrupted in a soothing voice, but half a moment we must talk this over. Directing the cocheur to drive to the Place Pigalle, he re-entered the cab, suspicion more than ever rife in his mind. But as far as he could see, with that confounded Sergo staring, there was nothing else for it. He couldn't stand there in the rain forever, gossiping with a girl half hysterical, or pretending to be. "'You see,' she explained, when the fiacre was again underway, "'I thought I had a hundred-franc note in my pocket-book. And so I have, but the pocket-book's back there.' in my room, at Troyon's. A hundred francs wouldn't see you far toward New York, he observed thoughtfully. Oh, I hope you don't think... She drew back into her corner with a little shudder of humiliation. As if he hadn't noticed, Lanyard turned to the window, leaned out, and redirected the driver sharply, Impasse Stanislas. Immediately, the vehicle swerved, rounded a corner, and made back toward the Seine with a celerity which suggested that the stables were on the Rive Gauche. "'Where?' the girl demanded as Lanyard sat back. "'Where are you taking me?' "'I'm sorry,' Lanyard said with every appearance of sudden contrition. "'I acted impulsively on the assumption of your complete confidence, which, of course, was unpardonable. But, believe me, you have only to say no, and it shall be as you wish.' But she persisted impatiently. You haven't answered me. What is this impasse Stanislaus? The address of an artist I know, Solon, the painter. We're going to take possession of his studio in his absence. Don't worry. He won't mind. He is under heavy obligation to me. I've sold several canvases for him, and when he's away, as now, in the States, he leaves me the keys. It's a sober-minded, steady-paced neighborhood where we can rest without misgivings and take our time to think things out. But, the girl began in an odd tone, but permit me, he interposed hastily, to urge the facts of the case upon your consideration. 
"'Well?' she said in the same tone as he paused. "'To begin with, I don't doubt you've good reason for running away from your father.' "'A very real, a very grave reason,' she affirmed quietly. "'And you'd rather not go back. "'That is out of the question.' with a restrained passion that almost won his credulity. But you've no friends in Paris. Not one. And no money. So it seems, if you're to elude your father, you must find some place to hide pro tem. As for myself, I've not slept in forty-eight hours, and must rest before I'll be able to think clearly and plan ahead. And we won't accomplish much riding round forever in this ark. So I offer the only solution I'm capable of advancing under the circumstances. You are quite right, the girl agreed after a moment. Please don't think me unappreciative. Indeed, it makes me very unhappy to think I know no way to make amends for your trouble. There may be a way, Lanyard informed her quietly. But we'll not discuss that until we've rested up a bit. I shall be only too glad, she began, but fell silent, and, in a silence that seemed almost apprehensive, eyed him speculatively throughout the remainder of the journey. It wasn't a long one. In the course of the next ten minutes they drew up at the end of a shallow pocket of a street, a scant half-block in depth, where, alighting, Lanyard helped the girl out, paid and dismissed the cocher, and turned to an iron gate in a high stone wall crowned with spikes. The grillwork of that gate afforded glimpses of a small, dark garden and a little house of two stories. Blank walls of old tenements shouldered both house and garden on either side. Unlocking the gate, Lanyard refastened it very carefully, repeated the business at the front door of the house, and when they were securely locked and bolted within a dark reception hall, turned on the electric light but he granted the girl little more than time for a fugitive survey of this anteroom to an establishment of unique artistic character. "'These are living rooms downstairs here,' he explained hurriedly. "'Solon's unmarried and lives quite alone. His studio devil and femme de menage come in by the day only, and so he avoids that pest, a concierge. With your permission, I'll assign you to the studio up here.' and leading the way up a narrow flight of steps he made a light in the huge room that was the upper story i believe you'll be comfortable he said that divan yonder is as easy a couch as one could wish and there's this door you can lock at the head of the staircase while i of course will be on guard below and now miss bannon unless there's something more i can do the girl answered with a wan smile and a little broken sigh almost involuntarily in the heaviness of her fatigue, she had surrendered to the hospitable arms of a huge lounge-chair. Her weary glance ranged the luxuriously appointed studio, and returned to Lanyard's face. And while he waited, he fancied something moving in those wistful eyes, so deeply shadowed with distress, perplexity, and fatigue. "'I'm very tired indeed,' she confessed. "'More than I guessed. But I'm sure I shall be comfortable.' and I count myself very fortunate, Mr. Lanyard. You've been more kind than I deserved. Without you, I don't like to think what might have become of me. Please don't, he pleaded, and, suddenly discountenanced by consciousness of his duplicity, turned to the stairs. Good night, Miss Bannon, he mumbled, and was halfway down before he heard his valediction faintly echoed. 
As he gained the lower floor, the door was closed at the top of the stairs, and its bolt shot home with a soft thud. But turning to lock the lower door, he stayed his hand in transient indecision. Damn it, he growled uneasily. There can't be any harm in that girl. Impossible for eyes like hers to lie. And yet, and yet, oh, what's the matter with me? Am I losing my grip? Why stick at ordinary precaution against treachery on the part of a woman who's nothing to me and of whom I know nothing that isn't conspicuously questionable? All because of a pretty face and an appealing manner. And so he secured that door if very quietly, and having pocketed the key and made the round of doors and windows, examined their locks, he stumbled heavily into the bedroom of his friend the artist. Darkness overwhelmed him when he was stricken down by sleep as an ox falls under the pole. End of chapter 11 Recording by William Tomko